Welcome to the Garden Path Podcast, life lessons and conversations from the garden. Hi, I'm your host, Misty Little, and this is Season 4, Episode 8. We're midway through December, nearly to the winter solstice, and other than an early freeze, this winter has actually been fairly mild so far. We're rather average, I'd say, here in the greater Houston area. I've had two butterfly surprises in the last week due to, well... One was a pipevine swallowtail e-closing, and after having been a pupa since September, I kind of figured they would all stay in through at least February. Well, it came out. I'm not sure what it was thinking, but all of its brothers and sisters are so far still cozy in the butterfly tent, but I let this one out. Hopefully it's doing going to do well. And the second was having two monarch butterflies e-close. Uh, this fall, the fall monarch season was a very big slump for me compared to last fall and earlier this spring with, I just had a few eggs that were laid in the garden and honestly, a couple of them didn't even hatch. So I had just those two caterpillars I raised to chrysalis stage and they had been in chrysalis since early to mid-November and I f- pretty much figured that they were going to hang out in chrysalis till February as well, but something triggered. I started noticing that they were darkening last week and I knew that they were, they were going to eat clothes early, which is kind of tricky this time of year. Not enough, um, nectar for them and the cooler weather. Well, these crazy butterflies also decided to eat clothes on a day that went from the mid seventies to the mid forties by the evening. Um, a cold front came through, so I ended up keeping them inside for an extra day. I gave them some apple juice, but based on recommendations from Monarch Watch, uh, before releasing them when the temperature warmed up today. And after a bit of a groggy start, they both flew away. Thankfully, I was a little worried for a moment. Unfortunately, they're probably not going to make it to Mexico this late in the season, but I do know that in the warmer zones of Texas, towards the coast, there are year-round populations that will linger, so hopefully they can find their way an hour or two south of here, get some warm spots, and find some nectar. So every now and then, I have someone reach out to me expressing interest in being a guest on this podcast instead of me reaching out to them. Michael Wolfert of Symbiosis Regenerative Systems reached out to me just as season three was ending, and I reconnected with him this fall. Symbiosis Regenerative Systems is a permaculture design firm based out of Dale, Texas, southeast of Austin. Unhappy with office life, Michael left a nine-to-five world to forge his own path, beginning with a permaculture design course, which led to internships and jobs with other permaculture-based farms throughout the Texas Hill Country. Eventually, Michael created Symbiosis and now works to create sustainable and ecologically sound designs on properties in the area that can handle the harsh all-on and all-off rain cycle of Central and West Texas. In this episode, you'll hear how enthusiastic Michael is about what he does, ideas on how to incorporate permaculture design principles on your own land, and I highly suggest you watch some of the videos on the company's Facebook page and YouTube channel just to see what he's created. You can find the show notes for this episode at thegardenpathpodcast.com and find me on Instagram at thegardenpathpodcast, as well as on YouTube by the same name. I've started uploading new videos once again, so that's exciting. I'm looking forward to kicking off the back half of the season in January, and to give you a little hint, we're going to jump across the pond for that episode. If you enjoyed the episode, consider leaving a five-star rating and review on iTunes and Stitcher, and if you enjoy the podcast, you can also sign up for the monthly newsletter at the podcast website. 
I recently sent out my holiday gift guide a few weeks ago, and since this episode is going to air about one week before Christmas, and maybe you still need to do some shopping, you can check out the gift guide and uh, get some ideas, and all of that will be in the show notes as well. Okay, enjoy, and happy gardening. Okay, all right, well, first of all, thanks for reaching out to me way back when, that's was I think in June, I believe, or maybe May, but, um, I, how did you find the podcast? Did you listen to the talking tree farm episode or? Yeah. Um, I listened to that episode and your most recent, well, maybe not most recent, but, um, you were talking to the gentleman, gosh, I, his name is slipping my mind right now, but he was writing the book on, he was hunting down all of these elusive wildflowers. And I just thought what a fascinating life this guy has and, and to be so, passionate about that i thought that was really cool oh yeah the most recent one with uh, michael eason yeah he was really cool um i i would like to tag along with him sometime <laughs> yeah, yeah i think there's so many sort of like unsung heroes like that in the field of horticulture and you know land management and things like that that it's you know unless you're kind of a nerd about it like i am it's like <laughs> most people will never appreciate this guy's like dedication you know Right. Absolutely. Um, well, yeah, let's talk about you then. I mean, um, I did, don't know a whole lot about you. I, you know, gleaned what I could from your website and I, I read about, or watched a lot of, of your Facebook videos. Um, so what's your background and, um, how did you become interested in horticulture? Well, you know, I sort of stumbled upon it and, um, it sort of came from a dissatisfaction. I was working in an office um, and it just wasn't working out for me. I mean, everything was was fine externally. You know, I was doing well at the job and, uh, you know, I had enough money to meet my needs and everything. And I just, you know, slowly but surely was becoming so unhappy in that position. And so, you know, when I got laid off, I was trying to work up the courage to quit my, you know, my day job. <laughs> kind of like really, uh, you know, a stroke of fortune because, uh, you know, you get severance and things like that. So I had some time to really think about what I wanted to do. And all I really knew at that point was I didn't want to work in an office. Right. Um, and so I ended up, you know, I was in South Florida at that time uh, for, for a little while. And I ended up back in Austin during this period where I could really try to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And a friend of mine called me up one day and he said, well, you know, hey, do you want to come to this permaculture design course? And I had never heard of permaculture before. So I had this big question of like, that's an awkward word. You know, what the heck does that mean? And so he gave me sort of a brief explanation on what permaculture was about or what he thought it was about at the time. And I said, okay, well, let me think about it because this is kind of out of the blue. And I remember I hung up the phone and I thought about it for like 30 seconds. (laughs) It It was really clear to me that I needed to explore this uh, this possibility. And so I called him right back up and was like, yeah, I'm in, let's do it. So, you know, just, just like that, just out of the blue, I ended up going to a permaculture design course, which is like a 10 day intensive. You're in the classroom all day. And then we'd hang out around the campfire at night and get to know each other better. And like, it was this huge um, epiphany for me because I was coming from a place at the time of feeling like, well, the best I can hope for is just to have as little negative impact as possible in my life here on the planet. And, you know, learning about all of these cultures before us who were more in balance with nature and then thinking about taking that that balanced awareness and lifestyle 
and applying that with the, the technology that we have now and the sort of self-awareness and the global awareness that we have now and thinking like, well, wow, with, with these best practices from the past and our current level of awareness and technology, we actually have a shot to, to really leave a positive impact on the planet and to become a part of nature that's really functional and harmonious. Um, so, so that was really inspiring to me and just a huge, it's what my life has become all about since I started looking at things that way. Okay. So yeah, I want to step back for a second. Um, you said you were in South Florida. What were you doing in South Florida? Cause I, I've spent about eight years living there. And so I was just kind of curious, um, if you spent any time enjoying, you know, Florida's wildlands or if you were stuck in an office, like you had said. <laughs> Yeah, I was mostly stuck in an office, and it's funny to look back on it because in Florida, you know, you do have access to, like, abundant mangoes, and there's coconuts everywhere, and it rains every day like clockwork for most of the year, and I was, like, so disconnected from all of that, and I wasn't, like, wild harvesting any food, I wasn't going to any farms, I wasn't, I didn't have a garden, I lived in an apartment, you know, Mm -hmm. and so I think that was part of what was creating this, like, big sort of hole in my life and um, this emptiness but I did enjoy it I did find ways to get out into nature but I'm not a swamp person I know that about myself <laughs> now and I didn't, right. like I owned a canoe but I was like okay well there's alligators out here and this canoe is like, you know not the biggest boat in the world so I'm not going to go like deep into the Everglades in a canoe <laughs> um, so right. I didn't really enjoy Florida in that way as much And I remember I used to go running there just trying to get outside and it was like, I would go to the highest hill in like all of South Florida. And it was like a hundred feet elevation above sea level. (laughs) (laughs) It was like at all. Yeah. You pretty much have to run bridges if you want any kind of elevation change. Yeah. Um, So then you get brought back to um, Texas and you're from Austin originally. Yeah, I grew up moving around Texas, and I spent um, a fair amount of my time up in Pflugerville, which is just north of Austin. And um, I was up there when it was farmland, and that was really where, um, you know, we were kind of latchkey kids. So I would basically spend all my time outside of school just running around the woods in Pflugerville, Texas. And that was kind of one of the places where I realized that nature was just such an important part of my life and that I needed to be outside a lot. Right. And so after this, the permaculture design course, um, I mean, did you immediately like start trying to intern with other farms or um, even mm-hmm. garden designers? Or was this just like you just were gung ho starting starting your business? How did that happen? Yeah, I spent quite a bit of time apprenticing and I'm so grateful to my mentors who took me on, you know, this hard headed kid who thought that, you know, it was going to be easy to learn all this stuff because I was all fired up for my PDC and I had literally no experience growing things. And this really amazing couple, um, Richard Lindley and Gracie Broussard, um, they took me in as a volunteer farmhand and they had a very small farm, but they produced an incredible amount of food in a small area. And um, one of the things that I remember from them, you know, they were like, well, we've had all these different careers. We were talking about how I didn't enjoy my my first career selling semiconductors. I didn't answer your question, by the way. I was selling semiconductors of all things. Oh, gosh. There are all the little components <laughs> that go on circuit boards. I somehow got into that, like, like uh, towards the tail end of high school and then basically jumped right into a career, skipped college, went right into corporate working, you know, selling semiconductors. So 
I was commiserating with them about that. And they were like, yeah, we've had all these different careers. And the only thing that we ever really enjoyed when we were honest with ourselves was gardening. So here we are farming <laughs> in our 60s. And I showed up at this farm and I was like, man, I'm going to be so helpful. You know, I'm young, I'm fit. I'm going to really help these people out. And they just were so much better at it than me. <laughs> I would be like <laughs> tired halfway through the day. Like we're still working and they were just plugging away. Um, That's so they funny. And I also insisted on learning the hard way a lot of times and was saying, well, I know it didn't work for you, but I'm special. So I'm going to plant this banana tree, you know, and they were like, well, it's probably going to die. And I was like, but permaculture, I want to plant a <laughs> banana tree. Well, you can. Um, ours come back, at least down here in Houston. I don't know about in Austin. I think you guys might get a little bit colder than we do. So, yeah, there's, so there's I kind of like these uh, tales you'll hear of people growing different things. And there are certain things in Austin, like there's these beautiful grapefruit trees and things that I'm sure people really took care of when they were young. So I, I know it is possible, but it's like, it's the exception that you'll get something like that to really survive and produce around here. Right. Right. Yeah. I'm on the tail on the North end of, of a citrus zone. And we, we keep trying and trying, but if we go just a little bit further South, it's so much more better and more successful. And you can see a lot more um, mature trees than, than definitely up in my area. So yeah. we, zone pushing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I guess talk more about any of those apprenticeships and, and how long it was between you know, doing those apprenticeships for, well, actually, I, I'm curious, like, when did you take that PDC? Like, how many years ago was that? Let's see, that was about 11 years ago now, I believe. Okay. And yeah, so I worked with Richard and Gracie on their farm um, out in Blanco, Texas, or Blanco, Texas. And um, I did that for about two and a half years. And I started out as a volunteer farmhand, and then I became a paid farmhand, and then I became sort of the main farmhand there. And I was living in a school bus without running water or electricity because I didn't get paid very much as a farmhand. Uh, but they were gracious enough to let me sort of park this school bus on their land and just camp out of it. And so I learned a lot doing that. And um, and there was also a it was on a thousand acre ranch. And I was also working with the owner of that ranch to implement permaculture strategies. And it was such a cool place for me to end up because the owner of that ranch, whose name is Sid Dubose, um, had actually hosted Bill Mollison, the founder of permaculture out wow. there way back in the day. And so he was like this really early adopter permaculture enthusiast. And he had this, these thousand acres. And, you know, again, there was this dichotomy, you know, he was older, I was younger, he'd already tried all this stuff and sort of learned the hard way. And I was all fired up to try everything and see if it works or not. And, but anyway, he taught me a lot as well. So I got to work on the, on the larger property as well as on like the really intensive farming and I just recognized through that process that like how complicated it can really be to work with nature and how easy it is for us to go into that mindset of just trying to work against it or try to force something to happen that doesn't want to happen easily. Right. And, um, and then after that, I started working at a farm and ranch in Spicewood and I was lucky enough to get brought on to, uh, kind of start or reinvigorate a little farming project there. And they also had a canopy tour business where they would take people zip lining through mature oh, bald cypress trees through this canyon. It's called Cypress Valley Canopy Tours. And that was a really great opportunity. Um, and where I, what I recognized there was that farming is one thing and then actually running a farm business 
is a whole nother thing. And so I started to learn the business side of things. And that was really challenging for me because I really just wanted to be focused on growing the plants. Right. I think that that's, that's the that's the dirty side of any person doing a business is they want to do the fun part, but they've got to they find themselves a lot of times having to do the back end a lot. So Yeah, yeah. And if you don't have good systems for the back end and you don't think that through ahead of time, then you end up kind of scrambling and it's really draining all of your energy and focus. So, uh, so that's one of the things I try to help people with is really understanding what a large endeavor it is to try and start any kind of land-based business and how intentional you have to be about it. Um, and at that place, you know, the farm wasn't making money, of course. So we were always having to give canopy tours. So I'd be in the middle of like weeding. I'd be all, you know, just dirty and sweaty from farming. And they would drive back in this golf cart, like time for a canopy tour. And I'd throw in my rock climbing harness and, go take people ziplining through the trees for two hours, at the drop of a hat notice. Oh and, my goodness. Get back to farming, you know, farm well into the night uh, to try and keep up with those chores. So, uh, so that lasted for about two years. And then, you know, they basically said, Hey, you know, you guys can keep farming here if you can make this work as a business. Um, but we're not going to like fund it anymore. So you need to like start being profitable right away. And we had had kind of like a longer plan before that. Uh, to get to profitability. Mm-hmm. And, and so at that point, I basically had to say, okay, well, I'm gonna have to start looking for other work because, you know, we've got a baby on the way. And I don't know if we're going to be able to make this profitable or not. Okay. So that was kind of a, it was a good, like harsh awakening for me, like, oh, and this is like, you know, live or die survival. It's even more stressful. Right. Wow. So, <laughs> So then from there, I was lucky enough to get a job at a nursery called Hill Country Natives, which is in Leander, Texas, which is also north of Austin. And uh, Mitch Mitchamore is, uh, or Emery is his name, but he goes by Mitch, was a really phenomenal mentor. He's a mechanical engineer by trade. So he's got this really great systems and problem solving thinking, but he's also an early adopter who was into holistic management and permaculture kind of even before they they had like followings or names to them. He was just naturally inclined in that way. And so me and him would stand at the potting trailer getting eaten alive by mosquitoes all day, having these wonderful conversations ranging all over the place from, you know, philosophical to the nitty gritty uh, engine mechanics and, and, you know, other things that are related to permaculture, talking about all the different, uh, you know, amazing diversity that we have in Central Texas and the plant communities. And, um, and I feel like that's really where, between those three experiences, farming with Richard and Gracie, farming in Spicewood at Cypress Valley Canopy Tours, and working at Hill Country Natives is really where I built the base of my knowledge, because the PDC is only 10 days, and it's hugely inspiring, but then from there, you really have to invest in your educating yourself further. Right. So I find it, you know... I really say in the last five years is when I've become familiar with, you know, what permaculture means and is, and it's really actually, honestly through podcasts is where I really came across that. Maybe on a, through a couple gardening blogs, the word might've popped up, but what was it like, you know, 11 years ago when you took that PDC with permaculture versus what it is now, like how are you encountering it? Is it, is it expanding in the knowledge base in Austin or is it still kind of rather new? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, it, it's expanded a lot. I'll say that for sure. And the interest has expanded a lot. And I'll, I think some of the people who have done the most for that are like Jeff Lawton. He's put out a lot of videos on YouTube and 
you know, one of his videos, Greening the Desert, got really popular. And so I think that brought it to a wider audience. And then just the, there's also a lot of people working in Austin to promote permaculture, like the Austin Permaculture Guild, and they're always teaching PDCs. And uh, there's a lot of volunteer organizations like the Earth Repair Corps, uh, where you can go and do a perma blitz and everyone kind of gets together and, and installs a permaculture system as part of a community event and they all kind of hang out and eat together. So it's also almost like a little bit of a celebration. Awesome. Um, so I've seen it grow so much in the last 11 years. It's amazing. And I'm also kind of in this weird little bubble. So it's almost like everyone I talk to, I can, I can kind of assume that they have some general awareness of it. Right. Um, you know, sometimes I'll like run into someone at like the rock climbing gym or at the grocery store and somehow it'll come up and I can tell that they've never heard the word before, but the idea of living harmoniously of sustainable farming of natural building, they've usually come across some of these components and are, are at least conversant in the ideas that permaculture sort of encompasses. Right. Right. Okay. That's awesome. I'm, I'm excited to hear that. I mean, I definitely, I'm not in that bubble and I definitely don't encounter that generally out in the wild, unless I'm talking to other gardeners <laughs> and then it's a little more prominent, but um, <laughs> other people in day-to-day life, it's not. And I think Houston is trying to be a little more like Austin, but Austin is definitely, you know, it's own little <laughs> situation there. So. Yeah. Well, and some of my clients are people who are moving from Houston or just moving a little bit more rurally towards Austin, sometimes like as far out as Brenham, Texas. And so they're from Houston, but they found out about permaculture somehow and they want to do it. So I know that there is some awareness of that in, in Houston, but, uh, but yeah, until you get in like that bubble and you make your whole life about it, I'm sure it can feel like, you know, only every thousandth person person knows about it. And, you know, really, I try not to, like, fly just the banner of permaculture. I don't walk around, you know, just saying permaculture in every sentence. I Honestly, the word is even awkward, and I'm kind of tired of saying it, you know. Right. Um, but I think, I think most people are definitely aware of, like, okay, we want to steward the environment intelligently. And, like, our ability to live on this planet is based on functional ecosystems and the ecosystem services that we receive from them naturally, this incredible gift that we've been born into. And we're in a time where that sort of seems to be threatened in many ways between, you know, diversity declining and all the different things that we're seeing that are kind of challenging our expanding population. Right, right. So after Hill Country Natives, um, I mean, your, your business is called Symbiosis Texas. How did you form that business? And I guess, where are you situated now? Um, okay, so as you can tell, I'm kind of long-winded. So when you ask me a double part question like that, I might forget <laughs> the second part by the time I've answered the first part, but I'll <laughs> no try problem. to remember. Um, so the business name Symbiosis Texas came about, um, I was brainstorming with the team. I was actually working for um, my friend Carolyn, who uh, she offered to allow me to do some cult consulting for her and with her. And um, at the time, she was just too busy. And her and her husband uh, started the Whole Life Learning Center. So they were getting really involved in that. But she had this business called One World Permaculture which was more about education, but she did a little bit of consulting and installation on the side. And me and her are friends, and I was telling her, you know, I really want to do this full time. I want to somehow make a career out of this, but I'm not sure how to do it. So she kind of offered me the lifeline. 
And I guess because of my background in sales and because of the base that I've been building over, you know, seven or eight years working in the farms and at the nursery with Mitch, um, I just flowed into it really easily. And I had already been answering questions for friends and family all the time. You know, I was always the guy that people were asking about gardening and I was tending my own gardens at home and just really hungry for all the experience I could get. So when I started being able to work with people who, who could really benefit from the knowledge I had built up, it felt really good and it just took off. Um, you know, every single client that she introduced me to, almost every single client, you know, it ended up turning into either a design or some sort of just brainstorming leading right into installation work. And, you know, we got about a year into that of me working under One World Permaculture and we realized like, okay, this isn't going to stop unless I stop doing it. So now it's time for me to start my own company because she wanted to focus on education. So I had to find a business name and I was racking my brain and I was brainstorming with the crew one day. We were working on a project out in Blanco planting, you know, like a thousand fruit trees. It was a really fun project. <laughs> and, um, and we were thinking and we had this really fun discussion about all these different options. And uh, the word symbiosis kept popping into my head as like the most concise description of what it is that we're trying to do, which is to live more symbiotically, more in balance and to have this win-win situation where we're benefiting the systems that make it possible for us to eat and clothe and shelter ourselves and, you know, leaving this legacy that we can be proud of behind us. Um, and so I just thought, well, if that's the best word to describe it, I really like to be concise and I'll, <laughs> despite how long winded I am. Um, so I'll just choose symbiosis. And there have been times where I've regretted it because when I'm on the phone with, you know, I'm like ordering some materials and I'm on the phone with, like a truck driver or someone who English isn't their first language or something like that. It's really hard for them to hear what I'm saying over the phone. Right. And it's hard to like enunciate that word symbiosis. So I, I have a lot of trouble sometimes getting people to understand what the company name is over the phone. But I think once you know what that word is, it makes a lot of sense. Right. No, I totally understand. I think it, it definitely is. I, I think a very fitting name for a permaculture design company. Well, thank you. And, and to remind you, the second part of that question is like, where are you at? Where are you at now? Where did you decide to settle and to, 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 uh, to set up camp? Sure. Um, so I have a place in Dale, Texas, which is Southeast of Austin. And that's our homestead where we get to experiment and try things. And, you know, um, I have planted a bunch of fruit trees out here. We've installed some ponds. We've done some berms and swales, you know, just some of the classic permaculture stuff for ourselves. We've also installed rainwater catchment systems. Um, we've got vegetable gardens, of course. We've got herb gardens. Uh, we try to manage the passive solar heating of the homes with different trellises and, um, you know, planting trees in places where we'll receive shade from the afternoon sun, but it's not going to be too close to the structure that it's going to be dropping limbs on the roof or anything like that. Right. Um, so yeah, just slowly but surely. And we've been out here for about three years, but we, we offer our services to other people who are setting up their own homesteads or working on, you know, solving some sort of a water management issue or wanting to start a big garden really within about a two hour radius of Austin. So we've gone as far north as Waco. We've gone all the way out to Brenham, Texas, to the east. We've gone um, to the west. We go all the way out to Fredericksburg sometimes for the right client. We've gone all the way down to San Antonio. 
And I think that ability to be mobile or that willingness to work with people all over Central Texas is one of the reasons that we've been successful because we're willing to have such a broad service area. We get sort of the fun projects um, because not all those people live in Austin. In fact, very few people have enough land to really do the kinds of projects they love in the city limits. Right. And I, what I love about being in Austin and working in all those different directions is that every direction you go from Austin is a slightly different bioregion and a slightly different ecosystem, mm-hmm. different soil type, different challenges. You know, to the west, there's really heavy deer pressure. There's sometimes limestone right at the surface. There's lots of ash juniper. Um, and there's also, you know, beautiful aspects about working that way as well. I mostly mentioned the challenges, but there's also some really great land out there and some really interesting challenges that we can work on. And then to the east, we've got the heavier clay and we've got, you know, sometimes we're working in pine forest where the soil's more acidic so we can grow things like pawpaws and blueberries. Um, you know, and then if you go far enough south, you start to get towards those citrus zones. And so maybe you can push what you can grow a little bit more and plant some cold hardy citrus. And then going up north, you know, you can use longer chill hour varieties of fruit trees and right. you can count on a little bit more rain in some directions than others. Right. So it's fun. No, I, that's sounds like you always have something different and new to think about. You're not stuck in, you know, just situating when Austin, you can, you can test your, uh, test your skills, I guess I should say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think it's one of the reasons that I won't leave Texas, uh, at least not lightly because I put in so much work to learning how to deal with all those different situations that I can't imagine going somewhere else and having to learn all of those things as well. Um, even though it is a fun challenge, it's like, this is challenging enough. There's so many different parameters to keep in mind and to adjust to. Yeah. I mean, I would say that the Austin Hill country area is probably, I don't know, frankly, one of the toughest places to, to be a gardener because it's either, you know, you guys are drowning in water just a few weeks ago or, you know, three years, four, four or five years ago, there was no water. So it's a constant, there's no happy medium. Yeah. It really keeps you on your toes. And um, I said, I remember a story that Richard Lindley told me that the first farmer I worked with about, um, you know, how the fox's tail is almost as much mass as the fox's body and the fox uses that tail to make fast turns. So it can throw that tail as a counterweight and, and make a really fast turn. And he was saying, that's what it's like to be a gardener in Texas. You have to be ready for the weather to shift, for the flood to come, for the drought to come. You have to be ready for anything tomorrow somehow. And that's the challenge. And from year to year, things are different. You, you get into a groove and you think, okay, now I know what to expect. And then the next year brings a totally different set of challenges from the year before. And if you, you know, if you don't like being challenged, it might not be a good place to try to grow food. You know, you might want to go somewhere that's a little more consistent. Right. Um, so we didn't talk about all the different aspects. I mean, you've talked about building swales and setting people up for their homesteads. But yeah, maybe talk a little bit more in detail about all the different aspects um, that you provide for your clients. Sure. Yeah. Some of the most common um, sort of problems that we work on or liabilities that we address are water management. You know, we were just talking about the flower, the sorry, the 
flood and drought cycle. I combined those words, the flout. <laughs> Dealing with the flout right now, it's there's like flash floods and there's flash droughts um, where we'll get a flood in spring and then we'll get no rain for three months. Oh, and by the way, it's 100 degrees almost every day. Yeah. And um, And so it's like, you know, like you said, water's really abundant. And at the same time, it goes away really fast. So our job is to look at a landscape and say, okay, you know, we're likely to get a 10 inch rain sometime this year. And we need to capture that water. And we can do that above ground. We can do that in the soil. You can think of your whole property as one massive rainwater catchment system by getting the water to infiltrate down. And uh, by improving your soil as well, you know, the more carbon and the more organic matter you get sequestered down into your soil, the more water it can hold and the more it can produce as well. And so we'll go to a property and we'll work with a client to figure out, okay, what are your goals? Like, what do you want to do? And, um, and a lot of times the client will either want to do everything. They're just really excited and they want to try everything, or they'll have one really specific goal. And we'll really try to put in the, the work to diagnose like, okay, what's your situation? And is this really realistic? So you say you want to be a farmer, but you know, do you really want to run a farm? Here's what it seems like. Let's go visit some farms and talk to those farmers. And let's, let's even ask them really direct questions. Like, Hey, like, are you guys going to make enough money? Like, or how much can I expect to make as a farmer? If I do really well, like you guys are doing, right. if I work really hard, because I think people need to be realistic about that stuff. But um, some of our favorite, some of my favorite things to do are to create triple water redundancy. So we'll go onto a property and we'll install ponds in the right places uh, with, with enough catchment and where it's, you can get a lot of leverage with the least earth moving to create as much storage capacity as possible. And then we'll usually install a rain tank. So we'll capture water off of all of the roofs that we can. And what we'll do is we'll have the rain tank be the first source for really highly efficient irrigation systems. So these irrigation systems will hook them up to like a weather station and it will read the weather and say, okay, we got this many inches of rain. So the irrigation system isn't going to run until that dries out. And it also will measure the wind and all these different factors. It's amazing. Technology is, is advancing so fast in this regard. That's and then when, when the rainwater runs out, then we'll pump out of the pond. And when the pond gets down to a let's say a 16 foot pond when it gets when we've pumped out six feet of it which rarely happens and we'll stop pumping out of the pond and we'll go to the well as the very very last backup and so the goal is to actually put more water into the soil and eventually into the aquifers than is actually being used for production on the site and awesome. so that's one of the metrics of success for a regenerative project. And then one of the other ones is that we're actually building soil as we produce some sort of yield. Right. Um, right. As, a, as opposed to, you know, decreasing soil fertility or mining the carbon out of the soil through constant disturbance and tillage and things like this. Right. I think that was one of the, your, your water systems or what I was most impressed with when I watched your videos, um, mostly because I feel like developers and homeowners themselves just don't 
A, understand the, <laughs> the flow of water and the way we're building our cities now does not take into account any of this as, we're, as we've been seeing <laughs> in the last few years of flooding. Yeah. Um, so I think I was definitely most impressed with that aspect of your business. And, and you know, maybe hopefully that, that your that thought process will catch on and, you know, be taken into account by other people too. But I mean, what's your take on that? Are, are there people seeing what you're doing and trying to imitate that or replicate it? Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I got to say Austin has some pretty progressive um, or some pretty appropriate uh, laws in place and systems in place for creating, you know, catchment on water. It's, they don't, they don't really think about it so much as like, how do we utilize this as much as possible? But they do think about, okay, you're putting in an apartment complex, you're going to create this much impermeable surface, that's a lot of runoff. So you're going to have to build this retention pond over here, instead of just allowing all of that water, which might be millions of gallons, every inch of rain to go right into the stream or the river or whatever it is and create flooding downstream, you need to build this big of a retention pond. And that's going to capture most of the rain we get and allow it to actually in soak and get down into the aquifer. So so in some ways, that's already caught on. And there's legislation and there's stuff in place for that aspect of it. And I love that. But where we can, like a really good leverage point is, okay, so we're, we're managing the water. So how do we use it multiple times before we essentially let it leave the property? Before we kind of say, okay, we're all done with that water. Um, so like in some cases they're watering grass at an apartment complex and they're using city water to do that, which has been, uh, filtered. It's gone through this kind of energy intensive process. It's been pumped all around. And meanwhile, they've got these retention ponds and some of those ponds, it might be possible to actually make another pond close by that holds water that they could pump out of for the irrigation system. Right. Um, and really like apartment complexes and urban environments aren't my forte, but just some ideas about how this stuff could be applied on that level. Um, but uh, what I do think it will catch on because you can address so many problems at the same time. So when we're flood proofing a property um, by creating ponds and using berms and swales to guide water across the property and just making sure that none of the water is going to interact with the structures in a negative way. We're also helping to drought proof that property. So we're doing two things at once and by capturing the water and making it, building a system that allows us to move that water around and use it strategically. And then that also helps us to create some protection against fire too because now we've got more water on site that we can use and we can move it around the property. So if there's a fire, we've got more of a chance and we can also do that through land management by making sure there's not too much fuel load. So that way we can help to control fire. Cause that's a really scary thing. You know, if you've got this beautiful property with these mature trees on it and there's a wildfire, I mean, you can, you can lose so much value and so much time and, and just what you love about that land overnight, you know, so quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so because we can address these major liabilities, um, I think it will catch on because especially people who have the means to own large pieces of land, you know, all those people have good insurance. And this is really just good insurance through through smart land management. Right. 
So do you want to talk about any of your favorite clients or cases, the transformations? Like what have you seen that's been most successful for you? Um, well, some some stuff that I think is really cool is um, we've gone on to rocky hillsides in certain places, usually a little bit west of 35. And just in a short period of time with a little bit of organic matter investment, we've been able to take a rocky hillside that was you know, maybe just like three or four plant species and create these food forests and uh, and also install vegetable gardens with them too and and have some chickens involved to help manage the understory and, and control pests and add fertility on site. And, and these systems are so successful. I've just seen this transformation from, you know, what what was almost a moonscape into this incredible pocket of diversity. And you can see the bees and the butterflies and the hummingbirds and all the wildlife kind of flocking to this little oasis. And then I believe that over time, those animals will carry seed out of this little pocket of diversity and, and start to inoculate those surrounding area. Um, and, you know, you do have to be a little bit careful. You don't want to be just, um, you know, there are certain things that I wouldn't plant because of that ability for them to spread. Right. Um, and it's kind of tricky because it's like, if it's really useful, then sometimes I'll make that compromise and I'll be like, yeah, you know, um, this thing is is pretty aggressive and it can spread fast, but it's also incredibly useful. And, um, and in a healthier ecosystem, you know, I think we would see this here anyway. Okay. So I guess what are some of your um, go-to plants when you're doing that kind of installation? Yeah, well, um, mulberry is one that I was actually thinking of during that last little rant that I was giving about trees that can spread fast. And, you know, you might not see a mulberry, you know, further west in the hill country, but um, it grows so fast. It's a wonderful source of food, the berries, and you can actually eat the leaves as well. Yeah. Um, I don't think they're delicious, but you can eat them. Um, it's also really good fodder for animals and it's got um, good fuel wood potential too. I've actually, um, I have friends who harvest mulberry um, for their wood stove and they say it's just as good as like a black locust, which is a tree that is also really good for firewood. Huh. I've never, I haven't seen too many mulberries, um, you know, in central Texas and um, they're definitely very prominent over here in the east side of, t- of the state. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I guess once you're rebuilding um, that ecosystem up and you have your water sy- systems in, in place, then these plants are, are really thriving. Yeah, and you do have to take care of them. And and that's part of it, though, because we've lost so much topsoil and we've lost so much water storage capacity in the soil that we're kind of recovering. We're in this state of disturbance. You know, we've changed the ecosystem so much. And if we were able to just put pause on our activities and we didn't need to grow food right now, we could just leave it alone and it would all recover slowly over time. It might take a thousand years, 2000 years, but that topsoil would rebuild itself. But that's one of the reasons why we install these really highly efficient irrigation systems is in order to jumpstart that and try to create those ecosystem succession advances within our lifetime. Right. And you mentioned uh, installing pawpaws too in some of the areas, I guess, probably south and east of of Austin. How successful have they been? You know, I actually haven't done very many projects where the soil acidity was was really ideal for pawpaws. 
Um, I have one friend in East Texas um, who also runs a permaculture design business, um, Integrated Acres, and his name is Theron Bordeaux. And uh, he has native pawpaws on his land. And every pawpaw that I've ever planted, I've usually just said, well, the soil acidity is not perfect, but I'm going to try it anyway. And I'll add coffee grounds and pine needles and stuff to try and help. Um, has basically just stayed the same size. I've been able to keep them alive, but they just sit there forever. Right. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it's pretty uh, alkaline over there in, in your part of the state. I didn't know how well they were going to do. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny because like 30 minutes east of here, there are parts of Bastrop that, um, you know, you can grow blueberries and you can grow pawpaws, no problem. But it's just these little pockets of, of soil that's sandy enough and has enough pine trees and, and other factors that help keep it acidic because a lot of times the water is alkaline. And that's even if you amend your soil like crazy to get it acidic, the water will turn it alkaline over time. Oh, wow. Okay. Because it goes through limestone, which makes it alkaline. Right. Right. That makes sense. Um, yeah. So what about any, you mix in, I guess, natives, uh, native plants in with your food forest type plantings? Yeah. I really like to try to use as many natives as possible. And um, so, you know, the native persimmon tree, uh, there's the Texas persimmon. There's also American persimmon, which you don't see in Texas very much, at least not over here. I, I bet it's more prominent in the East. Yeah. We've got a pretty uh, common over here. Yeah. And is it, do you feel like when a plant is more common that people kind of take it for granted a little bit more? Like you're saying there's mulberries and persimmons everywhere. Does anyone like harvest those and eat them for fun? Um, not really that I know of. I mean, not around here. And I, I, I've, there's some persimmons that I, I stole to, to grow some seeds, <laughs> to grow, from, <laughs> to grow some plants. Um, and I have a mulberry in my yard and we try to steal as much as we can before the squirrels get them. But um, yeah, no, no one's going like out and getting mulberries from their backyard or going out and foraging where they're able to, which I think is pretty sad. Yeah. And that's how it was in Florida too. Like we would have these mango trees in our backyard and no one was eating the mangoes. It was like a nuisance. Like, Oh, another mango fell on the yard. Like, dang, you know, here I go to the grocery store to get some processed food, you know, <laughs> and you can't live off of just mangoes or just mulberries, but uh, but once you're yeah. aware of it and you're kind of in tune with the seasons, it's this incredible treat. Yeah. No, and mangoes are a dollar each when they're not really in season. So, or more than that. So I would be taking them all. Yeah. And you know that it's organic. You know that it's like the highest quality because no one's going to go to the trouble of spraying that tree that's on the side of the road, you know? Right. Uh, well, maybe in some places I shouldn't say that about everything <laughs> on the side of the road, but if you find a tree in a park, it's probably pretty good. Right. Um, yeah. How successful have your Texas persimmons been over that direction? I um, have a garden friend down in Lockhart who's really, really trying to track down Texas persimmons because she wants to taste them. So she maybe she can grow them as well. Um, and I've never tasted one. So um, maybe if you have any insight on Texas persimmons. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, the, the Texas persimmon, which is much smaller than the American persimmon and turns kind of purple and black, has a lot of seeds in it and it has a very leathery skin. So it's not like a really pleasant mouthfeel to eat them fresh off the tree. Although there's a pretty high sugar content. Um, I think it's just not like what the average person thinks of as food these days. Um, however, if you're willing to process them into a jelly or a jam or something like that, I think it's, it's a really phenomenal food source. And um, I was tending my garden one night. I like to go out into the garden at night with on because I had to see things in a and I was, you know, kind of looming over some plants 
and you know looking at the insects crawling around at night and i i looked up into this texas persimmon tree and there was a possum probably about 12 inches from my face just sitting <laughs> in this persimmon tree and you know they've got that white fur around their mouth and it was just covered in juices of the persimmon so he'd been chowing down on these ripe texas persimmon trees um, and i know that the raccoons love it too and so it, it's also it's one of these plants that even if you don't eat a lot of it it's a really great plant to have for the wildlife and almost like a distraction tree because the, the native wildlife knows about that fruit and they're looking for it. And so I feel like it's also a good tree to offer the wildlife so that you don't have to compete so hard for the stuff that, that you're growing specifically for yourself. That's a little bit more palatable and desirable for us. Right. And I mentioned that tree. It's really just, just one of many of the natives that I like to use um, chili, chili patine is another one, or, or pekin, you can say it two ways, is another one that I really like that is just phenomenal for wildlife. It's also where all peppers come from. I mean, it's the ancestor, the genetic starting point for all bell peppers and hot peppers, as I understand it. Um, and they just will really take care of themselves. They're very hardy. Um, I like to use mist flower, Greg's mist flower and fragrant mist flower a lot because the butterflies just love it. Um, I like to use flame acanthus and salvia indigo spires for the understory. Um, a lot of times there's dewberries existing in the environment and we'll kind of work around those because they, they do produce a fair amount of food. Um, the downside with dewberries, man, the thing I hate about <laughs> harvesting dewberries is the dewberries ripen. You're laughing. You must know already because the chiggers, the chigger season comes up right as dewberries are ripening. So you go out and you spend a day harvesting dewberries and you're just covered in chigger bites. Oh, yuck. Dale, <laughs> <laughs> what about um, any kind of misconceptions you've encountered about permaculture as you've created your business? Yeah, you know, uh, part of my job is kind of helping to identify what misconceptions people have and to set them straight as best as I can. And so a lot of the uh, videos about permaculture are meant to be inspiring. And so people will kind of give you this short, very concise explanation of this project that they did. And you don't necessarily see the whole process and the struggle that they might've gone through as part of creating this process. And a lot of times they say, you know, I did this with, you know, next to no budget, it's all reclaimed materials. So it's basically free. And what they don't tell you is that they sort of like slaved over this project and aren't, aren't valuing their labor at all. So they might've put a thousand hours into this garden that they're showing you. And they're saying, look, free garden. But if you don't have a thousand hours to invest in building a garden, it's not really free. Right. Um, so that's one of the things is people kind of think, you know, you can do this, you can learn as you go and it's not going to be hard. And, you know, all of a sudden there's going to be food falling from the sky. Um, another one is that you can use berms and swales in any situation that they're kind of like a, a silver bullet of sorts. And uh, there are many situations where it's not appropriate to use burn the specific water management technique, um, and that you won't have to irrigate uh, if you do it right. And I find that most things need to be irrigated at least for the for the first couple of summers, if not more. And and even if you if they're established and they'll survive without irrigation, they won't necessarily produce well without irrigation. Right. Especially when you're pushing zones like we've been talking about a lot. And, and right. I think a lot of the plants people are excited about growing in central Texas, they don't love our hot summers and, and they don't love how dry it gets here. 
Well, even even if you're out in the woods and hiking here, even on this side of the state where we get way more water than you guys, if it's been a period of drought, even the natives just you can tell they start wilting. They they want some rain, even though they're they're established, they still are are struggling. So, yeah. and I, I do find that, and I've heard. Luckily, other you know local garden experts reiterate that yes, it's native. Once it's established, it's drought tolerant. That does not mean you don't water it. <laughs> totally, yeah. If you want it to really thrive, give it that little bit of extra water. And I actually think that's one of the coolest things about being a human who's you know interested in interacting with nature is like we can move water around. And there's not very many creatures that I know of that do that. I mean, it's basically us and beavers that can manipulate water in that way. And so there's just the simple act of filling up a watering can, carrying it over to a tree and watering that tree is like kind of a uniquely human service that we can provide. And then when you get into all the other things we can do as far as creating ponds and, you know, using pipes to move water around properties, it gets, starts to make you feel kind of special. Yeah, I've never thought about that. That's pretty kind of mind-blowing, actually. (laughs) (laughs) And sometimes we don't move water around in a beneficial way. And so we use this incredible power to our own detriment and to the ecosystem's detriment. Absolutely. I mean, the thing I want people to understand is if you're hurting the ecosystem, you're hurting our ability to to survive on this planet, to inhabit this planet. And we inherited this incredible millions of years of development that has led to this relatively stable place. And, uh, and in a pretty short time, we seem to be really disrupting a lot of that stability that's built on all of these years of, of uh, topsoil building and, and nature just doing its thing. And if we just understood, we could, we could you know, have a positive effect, but we have to really be willing to learn and, and reconnect with nature. Right. Well, I guess maybe if there's anything else you'd like to share um, about your company, any resources for people who may be interested in in jumping into permaculture in Texas, um, and then wrap up with where people can find you online and in real life. Cool. Yeah. So um, different things that you can plug into in Central Texas, the Austin Permaculture Guild um, here in Austin, they've been helping to promote permaculture for a long time. Um, There's multiple permaculture design courses you can go to if you want to take that kind of more intensive deep dive into what permaculture is. Um, There's also going to be a sort of party, a gala where you can dress fancy if you like to dress fancy. Um, I probably won't because I don't own any fancy clothes, so I'll just dress normal. But it's going to be at the Bar Mansion, which is a a really neat establishment a little bit north of Austin. And we're all just going to get together. There's going to be some good talks and there's going to be good food and music and dancing. Um, that's coming up in December. And okay. you can just look at Austin Permaculture Guild if, if anyone's interested in that. Um, I'd also like to promote some other really great people doing permaculture work in Texas. Um, Drought Proof Texas is a company. Uh, Pete Van Dyke, he's a good friend of mine who I work with. I hire him to do earthworks for me. He also does permaculture design, farm design for people. He does great work. Um, there's a company called Gaia's Permaculture, uh, who's uh, run by Ross, and he does really great work. The NRCS, sometimes I know I kind of, I know a lot of people will kind of shy away from working with the government for whatever reason, but the NRCS is a really friendly, really helpful branch of the government that is basically employs a bunch of plant nerds and ecosystem nerds. And they'll come out to your land and they'll nerd out with you about your ecosystem and help you find ways to make it better. And sometimes they can even help you fund certain projects through government grants and programs like Equip. Um, 
And there's the Earth Repair Corps, which I mentioned, and you can get involved in permablitzes and you can get involved in the permaculture community. You don't have to take a course. You can just show up on a weekend and pick up a shovel and be a part of a permaculture project and see what it's all about. Awesome. I wish I was in Austin because I would totally go to some of that. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, if you ever make a trip out, let me know. I'd love to I'd love to hang out and plant some trees together or whatever we end up doing that weekend. I actually don't make it to that many permablitzes these days um, because my whole life is like one never ending permablitz marathon. True. <laughs> <laughs> So if I'm not working on someone else's project on the week, I'm working on my own projects on the weekend or just hanging out with my family. Right. Right. Um, yeah. So, and where is, I know you're at Symbiosis Texas uh, online and you have Facebook and YouTube, right? Yeah. SymbiosisTexas.com uh, is our website and you can find us on YouTube as well. I have not been making very many videos lately, but someday when the stars align, I'll put out a lot of YouTube content. Um, I've got a lot to talk about and a lot of cool stuff I want to show you guys. It's just a matter of having the time to to actually take videos and edit them and not have it be, you know, just me with my phone <laughs> and not being able to hear me because it's windy and so on and so forth and the sun is in the wrong place. And, right. Um, and you can find me besides online, you can find me all over central Texas doing these projects. We're just all over the place. And I'm so grateful for the clients that support us and the, the people that are rising up to take on these big problems and trying to be a part of the, the solution and, and have a positive legacy that we can be proud of. Awesome. Well, thank you for well dropping me an email way back a few months ago. Um, it's good to know that there's other people in Texas doing permaculture because, you know, like I said in the episode with Talking Tree Farm, when I saw them at the farmer's market, I was just kind of blew my mind because, you know, here I knew about this, this ethic, but I had never seen anybody in Texas doing it. But, um, and knowing that you're out there doing it too, and I'm and sounds like other people are, are, are there. Um, it just, it really makes me happy. Cool. I'm glad. Yeah, me too. I mean, like I said, my whole life has been about this for over 10 years and, um, I just can't imagine being so passionate about anything else. And, uh, and I do think that there's a really good community all over Texas and it might just be a matter of finding the people in your area somehow and, uh, and plugging in with them. Cause I, I think there's people up in North Texas and there's people here and I know there's people in San Antonio. And so I think most major cities have enough kooks <laughs> in there that are early adopters of permaculture. Right. Awesome. Well, thank you. And, um, I guess I will, uh, talk to you online. Okay. Sounds good. Thank you.